preaching of God's word. Uh, the sermon text this morning comes to us simply from Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Uh, but for the sake of continuity and context, let me read verses uh, 11 through 14. So, chapter 6, verse 14 being the text of the sermon, but I'll read verses 11 through 14. Hear God's word. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lu- it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And let us pray together. Our gracious Savior in in heaven, we ask you that you might here uh, illumine through the preaching your own word so that the word of Christ, which is your word, might dwell in our hearts richly, full of faith. And, and as a transforming power in our lives. Greatly assist us, we pray, through the preaching and through the hearing of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, at this point, we have uh, seen the teaching. Paul responding to the accusation, uh, shall, we, shall we sin that grace may abound? Chapter 6, verse 1, he responds to that in verses 2 through 10. That's the teaching, that's the doctrine, and the teaching is then applied. Verses 11 through 13. And looking at verses 1 through 14 as a unit, the only thing left to do at this point is to sum up the teaching and to bring it to a conclusion. And that's precisely what Paul does in chapter 6, verse 14, when he says that you, the believer... Uh, Sin shall not have dominion over you, number one, and number two, for you are not under law, but under grace. He sums up all that he's been saying and concludes his teaching by one grand statement. It is, uh, let us realize, uh, one of those statements that is commonly uh, quoted by Christians, but rarely understood. You're not under law, you're under grace, you often hear. But one wonders, when one hears it, whether it has been understood. Look at what Paul is doing here. He's no longer exhorting. That's why we need to understand where we are in the argument. He's not saying to the believer, you shall not allow sin to reign over you. He's already said that. Don't allow it to reign in your bodies, verse 12. But he isn't saying that now. That is a common opinion and misunderstanding of this verse. But the true meaning is a statement of fact. What is true of the man in Christ. And therefore it belongs with these other statements that he's made throughout. For instance, what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that as many as, as uh, of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's a statement of fact. That's what's true of the believer. Verse 5. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. These are statements of fact. These are descriptions of the believer. And we have here yet another one. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. That's what's true of the Christian man who's in Christ. And so one way that we could look at this verse, verse 14, is that Paul is here offering encouragement to the Christian. He's encouraging the Christian to do 
what he's just exhorted him to do in verses 12 and 13. Do not allow, do not allow sin to reign in your mortal bodies. Do not yield your, your members as instruments of sin and unrighteousness, but yield yourself and your bodies unto God. And what, why ought we not to yield our bodies unto sin? And why ought we to yield them unto God? Well, because of this, Paul says. Because sin will not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Or listen to John Murray when he describes this statement in verse 14 as categorical assurance. Sin may not have dominion over the believer, for he is under grace. That is a categorical statement. That is categorically true always of the believer. And it is because of this that he obeys the admonition found in the earlier verses. Verses 12 through 13. Remember that all that he has said up to this point in chapter 6 is a response to what he said in verse 1. Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Everything that he has said is calculated to show how ridiculous and how unthinkable the suggestion is that the Christian saved by grace would walk in sin. He's heaping uh, verse by verse ridicule on the idea. He's taking the believer by the hand and he's saying, don't you see that this can never be the man who's redeemed by grace, that he would continue in sin? Don't you see that can never be for these reasons? Well, here is the grand reason. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are under grace and not under the law. The first thing that I would notice about this is how this statement comes to us. It consists in two parts. It's not only the conclusion in the summary, but here we notice the structure. Each clause, there's two clauses, begins with the word for. And so there's two statements we need to analyze here. For sin shall not have dominion over you. That's the first. And that's offering the reason to obey what he said in verses 12 and 13. And then secondly, for you are not under law, but under grace. Offering the reason that sin shall not have dominion over you. And so we begin uh, dividing these in two with the first four. For sin shall not have dominion over you. It is clear that this is the primary assertion of the verse. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Not over you in any sense. Yourself. Notice the use once more of you in both, uh, in both clauses. Shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law but under grace. He is speaking to the new man in Christ. What we've been considering all throughout. My essential personality. I myself. Sin shall not have dominion over me as a believer. As a new creation in Jesus Christ. But also your body. It shall not have dominion over your bodies. Viewing uh, me in a comprehensive sense. And if you take verses 12 through 14 together. You will see that. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That you should obey its lust. Verse 12. And then you skip down to verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. It shall not reign in you. It shall not reign in your body. Remember what sin is. Paul's definition of sin in chapter 6. And what John meant when he said that the believer doesn't sin in chapter 3 of 1 John. He's talking about a way of life. The course of one's existence. Shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue to walk in it? He's not talking about a sin committed here or there. He's talking about the dominating force 
and the course of one's life. And what is unthinkable is that the believer as a new creation would continue on the course and the path of sin. He will not continue in it. He will not walk in it. For it has no dominion over him now that he is a believer. Sin has no dominion over me because I'm a Christian. Do you believe that? Is that how you speak to yourself? When he says that it has no longer or it, it shall no longer have dominion. What he's really saying is it cannot. There is now no possibility that sin shall ever have dominion again over me. If I am in Jesus Christ, let us try to appreciate what this means. Remembering that the characteristic tendency of sin is slavery. Sin tends to enslave those who commit sin. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 8. He says, whoever sins is a slave to sin, but if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. It's one of the great commentaries on what Paul is saying here. He's contrasting slavery to sin and true freedom in Christ. The enslaving power of sin is what he is considering. Something that not only enslaves, but something that reigns over the believer. Or the unbeliever, excuse me. He says, sin reigned in death, verse 21 of chapter 5. So it is either seen as enslaving or as reigning. And what Paul is saying is that it can no longer do that for the believer. It can no longer reign. It can no longer enslave. The power of sin... Seen in this way is utterly broken by the cross of Jesus Christ. So that if I am in him, I've been set free. I've been delivered from sin's power and I can never again be brought back into bondage. John Murray puts it this way in a a very striking manner in his book, Principles of Conduct. And his chapter, the, the dynamic, that is the dynamic of the Christian ethic which is an exposition of Romans chapter 6, is one of uh, the mightiest chapters on the Christian life you'll ever read. He says this, Sin does not rule in the believer. The inescapable inference is that the sin which still inheres in the believer and the sin he commits does not have dominion over him. Sin as indwelling does not lose its character as sin. But by the grace of God, there is this radical change that it does not exercise the dominion. So that if we agree with Murray, and I agree with Murray, the force of the statement, sin shall not have dominion over you, is not that sin can never be a reality now in the life of the believer. He still sins. Paul isn't saying you'll never sin again if, you, if you're a believer. There's uh, some Christians who teach that, but that's not the teaching of this passage. In fact, if you understand what he's saying, certainly in verses 12 and 13, but also verse 6, there is still this possibility, and it's a possibility that we're all aware of, that we would commit sins, particular acts of sins, in the realm of our bodies. For we find in our members and our bodies that sin is still indwelling there. But what he is saying is not that the believer never sins, but that sin is not reigning. Even when the believer sins, it isn't reigning. It's not exercising dominion. It can no longer enslave the man. Even when he sins, it can no longer compel him to sin. 
He may still sin, but he's no longer a slave to it. If he sins, the believer, he does so no longer as a slave, but as a free man. There is no dominion of sin over the believer. That is the teaching. And so the shall here does not refer to something future, but rather to something certain. Something that we must realize is always true of the believer. Sin shall not, it shall never reign over the believer. And we are called to believe that. Not only to believe it and accept it, but even at times to remind ourselves of this fact. I'm no longer the slave of sin. He who has died to it is free indeed. Verse 7. And obviously in a positive sense, looking at this idea that sin has no dominion over the believer. This is what makes forsaking sin possible. This is what makes the practice of true righteousness possible. Now I am able not only to forsake the ways of sin, but uh, to walk according to God's law. To begin to live the Christian life. Why? Because sin is no longer reigning. But something else is. Again, you remember the Christian life is more than mere negation. Paul doesn't only tell us what isn't true, but what is true. And that brings us now to the second reason. The reason that sin shall not reign in the believer ever is because you, and again, notice that, you are not under law, but under grace. And so we see that the force of the second clause is to supply the reason for the first. The reason that sin has no dominion over the believer is because the believer is under grace. He isn't under the law anymore. He isn't under sin. He's under grace. Which means that now he's under the dominion of grace and not of sin. What's reigning in his life is not sin, it is grace. Did you notice Paul says that as well in chapter 5, verse 21? That's the verse that precedes chapter 6, by the way. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now grace is reigning. No longer sin. Do you realize that? And do you realize what that means? All of chapter 6, Paul is telling us about it. What it means to be under the dominion of grace. Once more, that does not rule out the possibility of committing sin, but it it does rule out the possibility of sin's dominion in the life of the believer. And so Paul here once again states this in terms of a contrast. Not only is the believer under grace, but let him equally appreciate that he is not under law. For you are not under law, but under grace. That is the full statement. Does that mean he doesn't keep the law? Of course not. That's how it's often taken. Uh, uh, You'll have to wait for verse 15 and following to see the answer to that question. What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. What's so interesting is that's how it's often taken. But again, we'll wait for that sermon and those sermons. For now, we simply see that we are uh, not under law but under grace. Paul is contrasting the old position with the new, the old man and the new man. And that's what he's been doing all through chapter 6 of Romans. That's what he's been doing all through the book of Romans. It is one great contrast between the man who is under the wrath of God, which is being revealed from heaven, and the man uh, for whom the righteousness of God is being revealed in his justification. And so, in order to appreciate the force of the contrast, not under the law, but under grace, we need to see first what is involved in being under law. 
And how does the transition to being under grace help us to be free from sin's dominion? In other words, in what sense is it true to say of the man who is under law that he is under the dominion of sin? And why is it that getting out from under the law and under grace helps him no longer to be under the dominion of sin? And one question that we might also ask of this passage is, what does it mean to be under something? That's another one of Paul's favorite expressions. He says at times you're under sin. At other times you're under the law. He said that already. Both, uh, both statements you can find in earlier passages. Here he says you're under grace. What does he mean? Well, again, I'm helped by Murray when Murray says that to be under something is to be under its resources. The law makes certain provisions. It, 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 it uh, allows for certain possibilities for the man who is under it. Likewise, the man who is under grace is under the provisions and the resources and the realities of grace. And so we look first at the man who's under the law. Now, the question of the law comes in at chapter 7. That is not the real focus here. But you do find many negative statements about the law uh, scattered throughout Romans chapter Uh, Chapters 1 through 6. And this is one of them. Another negative statement. The believer is not under the law. We read uh, certain statements in chapters 2 and 3. In the reading of the law earlier in the passage. But what we need to see. Bearing what was said in chapter 5 in mind. That to be under the law was the position of Adam. The first head of humanity. Adam in the garden was placed under the law. In fact, we later read of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that he was born under the law. In order that he might fulfill it where Adam failed. But here we are looking at it in its negative sense. Adam was under the law. All who are in him are under the law. All who are in Adam and not in Christ. The unbeliever is under law. The law is what determines his life. The law is what determines his relationship to God. And we could divide this question in two. First, what is the law able to do for the man who is under it? And what can it not do? Or what it cannot do? Number one, what the law can do for the believer. Well, it can make clear the will of God. It can command, it can demand, it can forbid. Is that not what Paul says? Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. The law is speaking to him. That's chapter 3, verse 19. The law is telling him what to do. It's telling him what not to do. It's describing his position before God. It makes clear the will of God. The second thing is, it demands perfection of all who are under it. And thus it grants no mercy. There is no provision for mercy in the moral law. And thus Paul says in chapter 4, verse 15... Contrasting law to grace, that the law works wrath. It doesn't work salvation, it works wrath for the unbeliever, for the lawbreaker. Number three, it holds men accountable for breaking its dictates. What does the law say to the man who's under it? It says you're a lawbreaker, you're condemned, there's no hope for you. At least insofar as the law is concerned. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may become guilty before God. And perhaps that is the key statement. We ask, what does it mean to be under the law? Well, you read verse, 13, verse uh, 19 of chapter 3. 
Another thing the law does is it convicts men of their sinfulness. Paul says in chapter 7, I never know, I never would have known what it was to covet if the law had not told me not to covet. But suddenly I saw in the mirror of the law my own sin. But here's the great point. Insofar as uh, we are concerned in chapter 6, the radical contrast being brought out from under the law, under grace, is that it aggravates the situation. It heightens the dominion. It doesn't lessen it, but it makes it worse. Listen again to what he says in chapter 5, verse 20. He says, well, I've read verse 21. I haven't read verse 20 yet. He says, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now, you might have thought he said, uh, or he would say, that the reason God gave the law was to restrain man's sinfulness. But what Paul actually says is that by giving the law, the situation did not grow better, but worse. That as a result of giving the law through Moses, and that's what he's referring to here, the giving of the law, that the sinfulness of men rather than being curtailed, began to vastly increase. The law entered that the offense might abound. The situation got worse, not better. Paul describes something of this on a personal level in chapter 7. He says, confronted with the commands of the law, what I found was not that I sinned less, but I sinned more. Chapter 7, verses 8 and following. I won't read that, but I think we're familiar with the arguments. And so what, what we really find is that under the law, the, our bondage and our dominion to, the, to sin is greatly strengthened through the law. And that is the, the dilemma of the old man. He looks for relief in the law and his bondage is only worsened. He only sins more. And that brings us to the second point, and that is what the law cannot do. And there's two main things that I could say here. Number one, the law cannot justify the unrighteous. That's chapter 3, verse 20. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What the unbeliever finds is that the law is not for him. It is against him. It condemns, condemns him. It holds him accountable. It certainly does not justify him. It is not the instrument of grace, and salvation is the instrument of wrath and condemnation. But secondly, uh, going back to what I said was the key point, and uh, quoting Murray once more, it can do nothing to relieve the bondage of sin. There is no provision in the law to make uh, this statement true of you, and that is sin shall not have dominion over you. There is abundant provision in the resources of grace, but there is no provision under the law to make that true of any man. Indeed, as we've already seen, it only tends to make the bondage so much worse. But standing in absolute contrast to that, looking at the old man under the law and the dilemma of the old man under the law, enslaved hopelessly to sin, is the man who is standing under grace, the new man in Jesus Christ, the new creation, the Christian man. In contrast to law is grace. The same contrast is at play with sin. In contrast to sin is grace. What is grace? Well, grace is God doing for man what the law could not do or what man could not do by the law. Uh, that's how Paul defines it in chapter eight, verse three. He says, what the, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. I think there's no better definition of grace than that. What the law could not do for the man who was under it, God did. That's what grace is. 
And therefore, grace must be seen like sin and like the law as a power which reigns over a man's life. Again, chapter 5, verse 21. Even as sin was abounding through the law unto death, grace abounded all the more through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yes, sin reigns through the law. And it even abounds. But look at the other side. And what you see is that grace is reigning. Not with equal equal but with greater power and it is God's grace solely that frees men from the power and the bondage of sin it is God's grace solely that enables a man to say sin shall not have dominion over me you appreciate then the force of the statement that the believer is now not under the law but he is under grace later on in chapter 7 And Paul will push this idea all the way through chapter 8. In chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says that the believer is one who's dead to the law. Isn't that interesting? You remember in chapter 6, he kept emphasizing we're dead to sin. But then in chapter 7, he says we're dead to the law. To what effect? That we might bear fruit to God. But the point is that in saying we are dead to the law in chapter 7 is precisely what he's saying here. We're no longer under it. The law is no longer our slave master. So that all the negative connotations of being under the law are no longer true of us. Everything that I just pointed out in those seven points. What the law can do, what the law cannot do. None of that is true of the believer anymore. We are now once again in a new position. And you can can state it in multiple ways. We're dead to the law. We're dead to sin. We're no longer under it. But the point is... These things no longer determine our lives. They no longer determine our relationship to God. They no longer define the way that we sin or whether we can can, uh, resist sin and so on. Again, the result is that we might bear fruit to God. Chapter 7, verse 4. But we must appreciate what it means to be under grace. In just the same way that we sought to appreciate what what it means to be under the law. Again... That is the essence of the Christian position. The Christian is one who is under grace. And that is what enables him to realize what is true of himself, namely that he is free from sin. He is able to say in a personal sense, sin has no dominion over me. It never can. It never will again. Because he's now under grace. And this means once more that he lives under its reign. Grace is now reigning in his life. No longer sin. Never again, if you are a believer, think of sin as the primary factor or the primary force in your life. Always, Paul says, think of God's grace as the dominant concern in your life. You as a believer uh, have been taken out of uh, the realm and the domain and the ways of sin. And you have been brought into a new realm and a new domain. That of righteousness and life and grace. You are now walking on a new path, not the broad path that leads to destruction, but the narrow one that leads to life. And the the name of that road is called grace. And so grace is a power in just the same way sin and the law once were. Something that tends to dominate a man's existence. It becomes the big thing in his life. If you look to the unbeliever, he may not admit it, but you will recognize immediately. Or if you think of yourself before you were converted. The big thing in my life was sin. But now that you're converted, 
Though Satan will labor to convince you, it's still sin. Sin is still the great concern of your life. It's the thing you're most preoccupied with. Paul says, no more. That is no longer true. The big thing in your life now is the grace of God. Do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, which is an excellent summary of what I am describing? He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And that is the testimony of every Christian who has been born again, who has been saved by the grace of God. And so Paul is saying, do you realize that? Again, he's in verse 14 encouraging and he's assuring the church with these two thoughts. Do you see what a wonderful thing grace is? How amazing it is that God's grace should enter your life. What it is to be brought under its powerful reign. You see, sin is a power. We ought to realize that it is reigning in the life of the unbeliever. It's a force. It's a menace. But grace is altogether greater and more powerful. It runs uh, directly counter to the ways of sin. But not only that, it is greater than the ways of sin. So that the man who is under grace is under its power. He is under its influence. He is under its resources. Grace is always made available to him, especially in the time of need. And it is this thought and this fact. That makes the dominion of sin impossible in his life. This great contrary power and principle. You cannot be under sin and under grace at the same time. If you are under grace, you are no longer under sin. You're no longer under the law. But the question which we might ask in addition to that is how does it come to us? How does a man come to be under grace and out from under the law? And there's only one answer to this question. And I would remind you at the same time. That there is an unfortunate tendency for us Christian people uh, sometimes to speak of grace as a kind of generic force. But that is to miss the real thrust of the teaching here. The way that grace comes to the believer is always and only through the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the very fullness. He is the embodiment of grace, especially as he comes in his incarnation. What the disciples beheld when he came in the flesh was grace upon grace. Abundant provision of grace through his person. And do you do you realize that the entire point that Paul has been making in Romans chapter six is what is true of the man who is in Christ, who is no longer in Adam, now that we've been baptized into him. Well, here's another way you could put it. The man who's been baptized into Christ is no longer under the law, but he's under grace. How did it come to be? Once he came to be in Christ. And thus, if we are united to him, to use the language of chapter 5, we have access through him, by faith, into this grace in which we stand. Chapter 5, verse 2. How did the believer ever come to stand in it? How did he ever have access into this grace into which he stands? By faith, through him. And do you notice how Paul varies the metaphor? In one place he says we're standing in it. We're always standing in it. In another place he says, well, it's the same place really. We've been granted access into it. Well, here in chapter 6 he says we're standing under it. However you like to put it, the point is the same in every case. That through the powerful ministry of Jesus Christ in converting the sinner unto himself, grace has taken hold of him. 
No longer sin, but grace. It's reigning over the believer through him and always there to help him. So that when Paul says that sin shall not have dominion, what he's really saying is that grace shall. Grace shall have the dominion always in the life of the believer. And the way that it has dominion is through Jesus Christ and his powerful ministry to us. Uh, Do you remember what the apostle says in, in the epistle to the Hebrews, which is what we studied before Romans? How he loved to describe Jesus as our great high priest. And what is it that becomes available to the believer in his bold approach to Jesus as our great high priest. Ministering in the presence of God on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. The answer is grace. Chapter 4 verse 16. Grace to help in time of need. That's why you go to him with great boldness. That's why you approach him in faith. What you're looking for from your great high priest in heaven is grace. Especially in the hour of trial and the hour of need. And what you begin to realize as a Christian is that, well, that you are what you are because of his grace. Because he's always ministering his grace to you. Not just in the hour of need, but always. It's always flowing down from heaven unto you through him. This is what Bunyan says in Pilgrim's Progress. One of the famous illustrations And I think it describes it well, what it is to be under grace. That is to say, grace flowing down from heaven to the believer. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where a fire was burning against a wall. And one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet the fire, uh, yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter. Thou shalt also see the reason of that. So he had him uh, about to the back side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand of which he did also continually cast but secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. That is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. Well, we may not see it, Bunyan says. We may not be aware of it, for it is the reality of faith. The writer of the Hebrew says, nonetheless, it is always true. Christ, as our great high priest, is always ministering grace to his people. That's what it means to be under it. And that is what makes the dominion of sin impossible now. It is the reality of Christ's grace poured out upon his church forever. Until he comes again. And so... Above all, grace is the power the sinner needs in his life. The grace of God he finds in Jesus Christ, his great high priest. In him he finds three things. He finds justification by faith alone. We are justified freely by his grace, Paul says. More than that, he finds, number two, new life in Jesus Christ. That too is the work of free grace in the believer. Over and over I've said this throughout Romans chapter 6, but it's the point we must see. Once we've gotten out from under the law and into Christ and thus under grace, 
The power of sin is now broken in our lives. Our former bondage to sin is utterly broken. In this, uh, you might say, that our salvation is likened to Israel's, taken out of the bondage of Egypt. On this point, Dr. Gaffin says, in the article I was reading uh, during Sunday school, on Hebrews chapter 4, he says, Believers have already experienced deliverance from the power of sin, pictured by the exodus from bondage in Egypt. Do you realize the great saving event in Israel's life in the Old Testament was being brought out of bondage from Egypt by the Lord? I'm the Lord who's brought you out of Egypt. Do you realize it's the same message in the the New Testament? I've brought you out of the bondage of sin. You once were slaves. Now you've been set free by my almighty power and my almighty grace. Grace in the Old Testament, grace in the New, is that which sets a man free, but which at the same time enlivens him to the practice of true holiness. And that's why the Ten Commandments begin as they do. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt. Therefore, render obedience unto me. I say again, grace is that which sets us free, but it also sets us on the path of obedience. But the third thing that I would say, and I would close with this, that this is the lesson that we're always learning. What it is to live by grace and to walk by grace, to live by faith in God's son, which means to learn, as Paul did, that his grace is sufficient for us. Do you remember what he said about this in Second Corinthians chapter 12? Let me turn there. What the Lord said to Paul is my grace is sufficient for you. That's the lesson of grace. There we are. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That is what he says in verse 9. That's the Lord speaking to Paul. Uh, But do you remember what preceded it? How Paul was troubled by this thorn in his flesh. He asked God to take it away, but that he might learn the power of God's grace. God left the thorn there. And thus Paul was taught to rely entirely on God himself and of his of uh, his son, Jesus Christ. And it is in that light that he says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and need and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, I'm saying that's the lesson of grace that we're meant to learn. And the amazing thing we all realize as believers is that we are learning it. That God's grace, which means, as Paul describes it here, his strength resting upon us and realized in us, his power in our lives, his grace appears strongest when we are weakest, humanly speaking. And it is there, especially in the hour of weakness or perhaps of trial and temptation, that the grace of God appears to us as our salvation and our strength once more. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, grace to help in time of need. That's what Paul is describing here. He was in great need before the Lord. He was in bodily distress. And what he found was not the end of his trial, but what he found was the grace of God. And I ask you in closing, do you know anything about this? Do you know what it means to be under grace and no longer under law and under sin? Well, it means this, that God's great saving power is made available now in our lives. Not only to set us free, 
but to enable us to live a life which is pleasing to him. That's what Paul is saying here. We've been set free from sin's power. How? By the grace of God, which is sufficient for us. But more than that, we are now able to live unto God lives which are pleasing to him. And do you know anything about that? Do you see how God is constantly teaching us this lesson? What it is to live by grace. And can you say with Paul, his grace is sufficient for me. For when I am weakest, then he is strongest. And his power is made perfect in my weakness. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Read the words of institution as they're found in Luke's gospel. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. I think from time to time, though it isn't my my common practice, uh, from time to time, it's helpful to read this little summary in our book, which I think is wonderful. So let me do that today as a change of pace. Uh, The meaning of the sacrament is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be observed by his church until he comes again. It's not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but is a remembrance of the once for all sacrifice of Christ in his uh, in his death for our sins. Nor is there a mere memorial to Christ's sacrifice. It is a means of grace by which God feeds us with the crucified, resurrected, exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit and through faith. Then he strengthens us in our warfare against sin and in our endeavors to serve him in holiness. The sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of our sin and our nourishment and growth in Christ. The bread and the wine represent the crucified body. And the shed blood of the Savior, which he gives for his people. Well, I might keep reading, but I think I've said enough. Uh, Do do you realize that what it's describing is the man who's under grace? And once again, the provisions of grace that are made available to the believer. Thus, we call it a means of grace. Christ is strengthening the believer, both in his relationship to himself, but also in our relationship to one another. And the one who is under grace is under his resources. But also, we could say uh, that he's interested in grace. And he wants more of it. He's happy uh, with what God has done thus far in his life. But he's still looking for more. And what Christ is saying uh, to his church and the regular observance of this, along with the other means of grace, is that more grace is available always to the believer. And that we might always receive from his fullness and be growing in grace. Uh, those, uh, let those stand as words of institution, but, uh, I mean of invitation, but also of fencing. Because I'm speaking to the man who's under grace, to the one who wants grace, 
but to the one who's still under the law, the one who's still seeking to justify himself by his works before God. Uh, that is the man who has no place at Christ's table. Uh, but with those words of institution, invitation and fencing, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this means of grace. And we ask you that through the administration uh, and the distribution of these things, that uh, the, the, the faith and the grace which is at work in, in every sincere believer here might be greatly strengthened and increased. And we ask you, Lord, too, that there might be a work of conviction, that we might be brought under further conviction, not as though to keep us back, but just as though to to break our hearts, that we might be fitted to receive more grace from you. And so, Father, we ask you that you might bless us through this means. In Jesus' name, amen.